Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Isaac Fravashi, here with my co-host Kate Price-McCarthy. Hi Kate. Hi Isaac, it's really good to see you. And thank you to our supporter BorrowBox, the library app that lets you download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. Now we're getting closer and closer to Christmas. Um, what kind of things are you looking forward to over the holidays, Kate? Well, every Christmas I always take two weeks off work, partly because I've not, particularly at the moment, not been able to get away on holiday anywhere else. And I really enjoy just switching off, reading loads of books, doing lots of cooking, vegging out in front of a good film, sitting on the sofa. So that's what I'm looking forward to doing. How, how about you? Oh, sounds absolutely delightful. Yeah, I'm, I'm going, I'm visiting my parents in Cornwall for the for the holiday. So yeah, just, just gonna sort of hunker down and, and enjoy the sort of darker time of the year. Yeah, it is, actually, it's a really lovely time to get out and about in, in nature and uh, and enjoy the wildlife as well. It's uh, We've spent too long closeted indoors, so um, Christmas holidays are a great time to get out and about. Absolutely, yeah, I love a Christmas walk. And I reckon our author of this episode is going to be on a lot of people's winter reading lists. Uh, Kate, recently you caught up with Janice Hallett, author of The Appeal, um, which was shortlisted for the Costa Book of the Year. Well, even better than that, her book has just been named by the Sunday Times as the crime novel of the year. Uh, And yeah, I know a lot of people will be getting it for Christmas. She is a fascinating writer because she takes a completely fresh approach to the genre, both in the appeal and to uh, the new book that's coming out uh, next month, which is The Twyford Code. Yeah, it sounds like a really fascinating form for the book. I think I've I've never read a book that's, that's completely documents before. I think that that sounds really interesting. Well, as I've said to her in the interview, I absolutely love books that are written in letter form. And I was trying to think back to remember which books I loved that were written in that kind of form. And there are quite a few. There's, um, I remember from my childhood a book called Daddy Longlegs, but there's also things like Les Liaisons Dangereuses, which is one of my all time favorite books. And there's something really clever about being able to tell a plot like that through just these uh, this correspondence that goes on. Um, but yeah, I'd be quite interested to know what uh, what listeners have as some of their favourite books that are written in uh, in letter form. It must be so hard to write those books as well. I always imagine there must be so much sort of mental acrobatics going on to, to write the plot together. Here's Kate talking with Janice. Thank you so much for joining me on the Love Your Library podcast to talk about, well, to talk about two things, really, your debut novel, The Appeal, as well as a little bit about your new book, which is coming out next month, The Twyford Code. So I'm going to start off by talking about The Appeal, which I was really impressed to see The Sunday Times has just announced as their crime novel of the year for 2021, which is very exciting. Um, so yeah, were you? Was that the first you knew about that, that it? It was gobsmacking. That was wonderful. Um, this weekend. For anyone who's not yet heard of the appeal, and there can't be that many who haven't heard of it, could you tell us what it is all about? The appeal is a book. Um, it's told through. Um, it's a whodunit, really, and it's told through emails. Um, messages and communications between people and they're mainly people in an amateur dramatics group um, uh, where a crime happened a while ago and someone was sent to prison for it now we um, read the book in um, 
at a time when two young lawyers are looking back over this um, recorded material to try and find out what, what went wrong, really, and why the potentially the wrong person has been put into prison for it. So there's, there are quite a lot of layers. Um, I like to think that the, the book itself leads you through them. It's not too much of, a, of hard work to read it. Um, but, yeah, you've got to sort out a mystery along the way. And you're with these two young lawyers as they do it. Yeah, you're discovering it with them. And, and at first, you know so little about it. You don't know who's killed or who is indeed in prison awaiting the appeal. So all of it gets revealed the more you find out. I mean, that's one of the things I loved about it, is it marries two classic forms of writing in a completely fresh way. I mean, firstly, it's a gripping crime novel, and anyone who's listened to these podcasts know I just love a crime novel. And secondly, like some of my absolutely favourite books, it's written, as you say, almost entirely in the form of letters or in today's modern version, in this case, emails. Now, was there a reason you decided to take that approach? And presumably, it gave you a lot of challenges along the way. It did, yeah. I think, true to say, I um, didn't know what I'd let myself in for when I started writing it. But when I did start writing it, it was a, a complete a fluke that I picked on on that particular format because I've been writing scripts and I've been coming up with a lot of ideas for TV series and one of them was um, a series where a couple who'd been volunteering overseas for years had been forced to come back to the UK and had tried to settle in in a very small town um, joining the local drama group and because of their experiences overseas having a different view to everybody else on a fundraising appeal now from that only germ you know a mere germ of an idea um, when I started writing a novel I thought well I, I like that idea how about I take the minor characters in that and show it as a communications between them and that was the start of um, a quirk of the novel in that you don't hear from the main characters because I thought this has been the the minor characters going so I didn't I didn't think a whole lot about it uh, it was very um organic and very natural because I wrote I wrote the novel completely on spec but I'm glad it turned out like it did <laughs> I imagine it has surpassed your expectations for the uh, uh the way it's been embraced by the public as, as much as it has oh, absolutely readers have, have just taken it to heart and loved it and it's been wonderful to read all the um people on Twitter and, and the reviews it's great now, there's a comment within the book about how much characters reveal about themselves by the way they write an email, because each character does have their really distinct way of expressing themselves. And that kind of adds to the plot and is often extremely funny. And my favourite was possibly, is it is it Jackie Marsh and her struggles with technology? Uh, were they really good fun to write? They were, in particular, Jackie Marsh, who is on a trip around the world and um, is encountering all sorts of uh, bugs and odd advertising uh, as she uh, tries to connect back to home. Um, so, yeah, no, that, it was an enormously fun thing to, to work on because a lot of people, well, we all communicate by email and message. Not everybody is up to speed with the technology, and I like to um, play with that uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, so uh, no it, it was great I mean I loved it and I only hope it's it's that much fun to read as it was to write. As you've said a significant element of the book is the latest production of the Fairway Players which is the village's local amateur dramatic club and now I'm involved in community theatre myself 
and some of the committee's emails in the book could have come straight from my inbox. Uh, and I was really pleased to hear that your insight has come from a long involvement with amateur drama yourself. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I joined the Raglan Players when I was 14 and I met my partner there. And uh, I only sort of stopped doing it in about 2013 when, unfortunately, the group um, folded. It had to close, um, having been going since 1972. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a lifelong uh, amateur dramatist myself and it's a brilliant hobby as you know uh, it's very all-consuming I mean it really raises your passions because you have a group of people gathering together and they have to work very hard to get this play up to scratch to put before an audience it's not like any other hobby you're not just doing it for yourself you are actually doing it for an audience um, and when they do I mean this fleeting moments when you're on stage and people are laughing and people are enjoying it um it's amazing it's wonderful if you've done it you you know and i i know that people who have done community theater see something in the appeal and they pick something up in the appeal that perhaps you you don't if you haven't um so yeah that, it's lovely that you did pick that up uh, and i was also really intrigued by the club's choice of play all my sons by by arthur miller now i get the feeling in this book that there is no detail there at random and all of it has been carefully chosen and plotted to get your readers thinking. Um, so uh, I'd be quite interested to know how you went about the planning of its structure. I, now I have to be honest and say I don't do an awful lot of planning before I write. I, I, it takes the joy out of it for me. I like discovering the characters almost along with the reader and I think that's what's behind the fact in the appeal that you don't know who's been murdered for quite a while because I didn't know as I was writing it, as I was learning who these people were and, and it was all unfolding in front of me. And uh, Now, that's not to say I don't um, do a lot of back engineering once I know what it's about and once I know what's happening. So I then have to go back. Now, I chose All, all My Sons because it does have um, a resounding relevance to some of the you know key themes that you know by the end of the book. Um, but I also chose it because it was one that we did at the Rackham Players, and it was um, a quite it was a tough one to do. I mean, if anyone knows the play, it's a very serious. Um, it's you know, you, there's not many laughs in it, put it that way, uh, and it's a tough one to do because for amateur dramatists because it takes a lot of good acting, um, a lot of um, commitment, a lot of a communication with the audience, the audience have to be on board. So it was a tough one to do and you need good actors, uh, which is also relevant for the for the story. Um, and it stood out for me uh, for that reason too. And I think we, we need to believe the fairway players in the appeal are a good amateur drama group, that they care about what they do, um, they're committed and what they produce, what they perform is good and the audience enjoys it. The book also centres on how the community sets about fundraising an eye-watering amount of money to support the granddaughter of the play's director and she's been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. Now I say as I say the book is laugh out loud funny but it does clearly also cover some really quite dark topics and I'd say that's also true of the, the Twyford Code. So do you think that's something you'll always be drawn to as a writer? Yes uh, totally. And I know um, the appeal has it's kind of found itself in the realm of the cosy crime um, book. Uh, I wouldn't 
put it there myself because I do like the dark side and I don't really shy away from that. I don't, I don't see myself as ever shying away from the dark side of things. I'm always well aware of the, the utter horror of these events and, you know, murder and crime. You no, know, it's horrific. And I, I, I'm always well aware of that. I don't want to um, forget it. I don't want people reading to forget that, that side. I think though I do like most writers of crime fiction, dial down the horror and dial up the mystery in the course of writing the book. But it, the horror is always there. And I think we should always bear that in mind, even though it is um, a safe space to explore these um, things, like the worst parts of human nature. But yeah, the dark side, I think, will always be there for me. As I say, your, your new novel, The uh, Twyford Code, is out next month. And that's only a year after your debut novel came out, this extraordinary pace of work. Now, it's very different in that it's almost entirely from the perspective of one character rather than the abundance of different voices you had in the appeal. However, once again, you've taken a possibly unique approach to the telling of the story. So could you tell, say, a little bit about how the book, this book, is structured? Well, yeah, I think you picked up on something there that it's completely different. And that was the rule that I gave myself because I wrote the appeal on spec, um, but it was, um, you know, finally it was taken up by Viper and I was immediately um, commissioned to write another novel. So I wrote the two back to back and I was very aware, that, you know, when you're a no writing a novel, you're completely tied up in it, in the story, you dream about it, you know, everything. So I thought, well, if I go straight into writing my next novel, it's going to be pretty much the same. I, you know, I don't want to write the same novel again with similar characters, just with different names. So I thought, right, the, the appeal was a, an ensemble with uh, female characters largely at the helm. So my next novel will be um, a single character and that character will be a man. And I thought that way I'm not going to write the same novel again. It's going to be different. And, uh, and that's how, how that came about. It, as I say, it's got this very unusual structure, but it is very different too in that it covers a huge swathe of time right from this man's childhood through to the modern modern uh, through to the current day um, and uh, again, some quite dark issues, things like gangland life in London when this man was a young man uh, and it sounds like you had to do a fair bit of research to to get all those details right. I certainly uh, did. I mean, um, there's quite a few elements in the Twyford Code that I, you know, had no experience of myself, and I did have to read around that and speak to people. Um, yeah, that it is quite dark. But the thing that sets it apart from any other book I can think of is that it's the transcription of somebody's voice memos that they've put into a, a phone. And they've used a tra transcription service that doesn't absolutely match up with people's language. It's the typical way that a transcription service would work. So there are common words that it keeps misunderstanding, particularly that comes from the, the way that the main character pronounces the words. But you have great fun with that and incredibly detailed way that you carry out the conceit of this transcription technology through every through every level. There was one bit that made me laugh out loud so much I had to read it out to my family, which is where you're 
some of the people are talking about the quality of fish in the fish and chip shop and you had great fun with the idea I don't know whether you remember that bit but that really did make me laugh (laughs) I won't give it away by explaining it now it's up to readers to go out and find it for themselves but I really really enjoyed that but there's some really beautiful detail that must have taken forever to put in early on in the in writing it I I did quite a lot of um I put my own words through a transcription service what it got right and wrong it was quite interesting it knows lots of brand names Yes. Whereas it will get very small words that we talk and we don't realise we don't say them. It will get those wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, very odd place names. It will know all of those. It's a yeah. strange, strange experience. Now, this book embraces all kinds of fascinating themes and topics. And I get the feeling, like the appeal, it's picked up on some of your own interests. Things like uh, armchair treasure hunts, which I found fascinating because I can remember when those were so popular initially, uh, as we've talked about criminal gangs in London, but also the legacy of a writer who bears an uncanny similarity to Ina Blyton. And also, very close to our hearts, of course, the importance of libraries. So are these topics close to your heart? They are, definitely. I mean, I'm, I, th- I think Steve's... Back, when Steve looks back on his life, I mean, it's not my life at all. We don't share anything in common. They are, nothing from our, my background is similar to his. And yet um, it is very similar. We were born very similar time. I made him exactly my age so that I could, the cultural references he had. And when he looked back up on his life, it was the same time as my life. And I, th- I think that that probably comes across um, quite well, I hope, because not having this connection with what the story he was telling, I needed some connection with him. So I made us similar ages with similar. Um, I mean, I loved Brighton too when I was a child. While you were while you were talking, I mean, it's occurred to me one of the inspirations behind the book is very dark, and it's that as a Londoner in particular, I've. Um, I've been horrified by the amount of gang crime and the number of young men in particular who are stabbed and killed in, in London. I mean, it's, it's a daily occurrence. Um, and I looked back to my generation and you know, I knew a number of young men you know, of my age, I mean, the early 80s, who got in with a bad crowd, who got into drugs, who did a you know, few dodgy things. And some of them ended up in prison, but uh, none of them killed anybody and none of them got killed. So... And I, I thought, well, I can't do anything that I know of about this current situation. So I thought I'd go back and look at someone from my generation, what might have happened to them to lead them down that path. So, that, yeah, that's quite a big, dark element behind the Triford Code, even though the Triford Code itself, I think, is quite uplifting and it's quite a positive novel, really. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is one element, but one very moving element, because so much of what draws him to that gangland is about wanting to feel part of a family, part of a community, which I think is, is I'm sure, true, true to this day as well. I know there's a title out there already for what your next book is. So is that something that you're writing as we speak? I literally, I'm literally writing it as we speak. I'm uh, working on the first draft of the Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels. Uh, I can't say much about it at the moment, uh, except that, yeah, it's going to be uh, a whodunit, a whodunwhat. It will be you'll sort out a crime while you're reading it. So, yeah, that's, that's all I can say at the moment. Just to finish off, I'm, I'm fascinated because you've had a kind of long career as a writer, 
as a journalist and then writing in-house material for the government and then as a playwright, screenwriter. And But it's only recently you've turned to book writing. And uh, is this, will you dip into other types of writing again or is now you've found your voice as a novelist, that's it? I would definitely love to keep up screenwriting. I've written the pilot for The Appeal. It's been optioned in America and we're working on the pilot at the moment. So I don't want to drop the screenwriting because it is, you know, I love doing it. Novels seem to be my thing at the moment. So and I've got so many ideas. Um, I really want to get them out there. Yeah, I found Janice as a writer such a, a refreshing person to talk to because she's obviously so passionate about what she does and she's got so much uh, love for what she does. Uh, her enthusiasm was, was boundless. And I'm really interested to see what she does next, both as a screenwriter and as a novelist. It will be very interesting to see in what she does in the future. Hearing about how she starts writing, she just starts writing, she doesn't plot her way through it she just writes a story lets her tell herself the story and then goes back and does all of the the details and and the practicalities of it all. i found that really interesting yeah and it was particularly unexpected with hers because there's so much detailed plotting in it that i imagine she had to plan it out all all at the same time you know before she started uh, but she's what i think they call a seat uh, seat of the pants writer um, but then, as she says, she has to go back and do a lot of reverse engineering to make sure it does all work. Now, on to the next section of the podcast, where we're joined by Anne from Yately Library, who will be talking to us about her recommended read for the month, The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes. Welcome to the podcast, Anne. Thank you. It's good to be here. A repeat visit from you, Anne. You joined us on our Louise Doughty episode with your book choice from Fleet Library that time, The uh, Wayward Girls, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. So it's, it's nice to be invited back. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. Anytime. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And, um, and tell us a bit about uh, Yately Library. What's it like? What's been going on there lately? Well, we're doing lots of preparations for Christmas. We've uh, obviously put all our decorations up over there. It's good to have the activities running again, like the children's rhyme time and story time. So we've been doing those and incorporating some good old Christmas songs into those as well, which is fun. Um, yeah, and just getting ready for Christmas. Oh, I bet I bet the kids love that, the uh, little festive tunes. Very cute. And in terms of getting in the mood for Christmas, have you got anything on your um, reading list at the moment that is a particular festive favourite? I don't know that I've got a particularly festive read. I've just finished reading The Floating Theatre which was absolutely brilliant. I really enjoyed that. But it's not particularly a Christmas tale, but uh, we've certainly got lots out there for people to look at. And I like looking at the uh, the recipe books, actually, and getting some inspiration for my Christmas dinner. That's a very good idea. I think recipe books this time of year are kind of an invaluable thing to borrow from the library because there's so much out there, isn't there? And if you're looking for more inspiration for good books to pluck from the bookshelves this winter, we have an excellent selection pulled together in our Winter Reads book list, which is available on the Hampshire Library's blog. For our listeners, we'll link that in the description of this episode. And um, I reckon the book that you selected um, to speak about today is probably going to be a really popular one with our listeners. Um, Jojo Moy is obviously a huge author, really, really popular. Would you like to tell us a bit about the book? 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, obviously by Jojo Moyes, and as you say, she's written loads of books. I haven't actually read that many by her because I prefer the historical fiction side of it, um, which is why I really enjoyed this book. I wouldn't actually have chosen it, but um, I'm in a book group and it was the pick a couple of months ago. Um, and I'm so glad because I wouldn't necessarily have picked it up. So it's set in the 1930s in the sort of depression in Kentucky. And it follows the trail of pack horse librarians who deliver books and magazines to remote communities. And their work is dangerous and lonely because they ride for many hours sort of going out by themselves to, to visit families. And I didn't realise this, but it's actually based on the real life initiative started by President and the First Lady Roosevelt. So it's it's really interesting. And obviously, there was a bit of affinity to my own job and I really like horse riding as well, although I haven't done that for some years. So it was kind of a really, really interesting read for me. Yeah, I'm exactly the same as you. I, I probably wouldn't have picked this up if it wasn't for your recommendation. And I, I might I might be wrong, but I think that it's quite unique for Jojo Moyes's bibliography. It's a, you know, she doesn't do a lot of historical fiction from what I know. So it was it was a really nice take on that true story. And I didn't know about that initiative until after I'd read it either. So it's obviously based on that pack horse librarian. Really, really cool and very empowering stuff. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I went and did a bit of research afterwards on that. But as well as that, I thought it was a really interesting look at things like female friendships, the power of books or, or the power of knowledge, you know, how it can be an empowering force, especially for women in sort of toxic environments. And yeah, those 1930s Kentucky mountains were just su such a great setting for a book like this. So what kind of things did you like about the book? Um, well, as you just touched on, I thought, yeah, it was a real strong theme of feminism and, you know, how women were quite suppressed at that time. Um, and I, I had to really remind myself that it was actually set in the late 1930s because at times it felt like you were back in the sort of Pilgrim Fathers era because of the way they had to live their lives. So I felt that they were really stuck in the past um, and women were really undertaking sort of the traditional gender roles, I think. And also they had a really hard life and were doing the lion's share of the, the men's work as well out on the land um, and, and, you know, doing stuff like that. So I really found that theme very interesting and, and as you said the sort of the friendship that forms amongst the women who are the the librarians yeah for sure seeing the the women sort of form those relationships is really the kind of driving force through the whole novel isn't it and 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 watching um alice is our main character isn't it and um, finding her feet in this strange new world she's sort of being guided by what she's trying to escape from and what she's trying to escape into and sort of finding her way with with these people that she's meeting and the friendships that she's forming and and like the newfound independence there really really brilliant part of the book i thought really well handled as well it doesn't feel it i think some some books when they're sort of trying to show this kind of era and this kind of story can sort of come across as quite forced but the characters are so so fleshed out so brilliant they really just carry you through the novel don't they yeah absolutely and, and I think Alice like you, like you say she she was really an outsider and and a foreigner I suppose and when she came over to the US they really treated her with suspicion I think initially particularly when when she went out delivering the books they were sort of thinking whoa who's this strange person because obviously her background and her life had been so different to what they'd experienced 
So I think that's an interesting theme as well, because it's the whole accepting of, of, of somebody who is an outsider as well. Yeah, it's there's a really funny point very early on in, in the book where she tries to imitate that that sort of American drawl and just gets laughed at basically. Um, I think she realises quite early on that being herself is probably the, the best route out there and that kind of authentic representation is good. I think Marjorie in particular shines as a very sort of um, well-developed, headstrong character, very independent. Um, whereas I feel if you if you had to compare her to Alice, Alice is a little bit more pared back, a little bit more refined and Maybe there's a bit of a comment on class there. I, I think that class is also a sort of element of the book that is runs throughout. But yeah, what 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 did you think about the characters? Were there any that particularly gripped you, and you just wanted to read more from them? Yeah, I mean, as you say, that I thought they were very very deep and very um, well written. The characters I, I did like um, Izzy, who was the uh, one of the librarians, and she sort of had had the disability because she'd um, had polio. And I think initially she felt she was a bit defined by her disability, but then she actually was able to not overcome it, but it was no longer a big issue for her. And particularly because she was going out riding, you know, she changes her mind, I think, after joining the librarians. And, and I think that she sort of really blossoms. What really struck me about the novel as well is that um, there's this running theme throughout about the kind of the power of literacy and how these characters really advocate education for for like rural communities and that kind of thing. And and, and this is something that's, I mean, Jojo Moyes is a huge uh, advocate for like the reading agency and, and she actually wrote a couple of books for the Quick Read series. But uh, I think you can kind of really see her own views about literacy coming through in the novel too. Um, I think this is a really good one to sort of show that. Um, how, did you think that was particularly well handled? Yes, I did. And, and like you say, going out to the communities and, and these people just didn't see anyone else in the winter months from, you know, one end, you know, the beginning of the season to the end. And I think by those people going out and actually taking them some form of entertainment would have been a huge benefit to them and helping them educationally as well. And, and I felt a kind of affinity with that because during the whole lockdowns that we've had recently, um, you know, obviously we did the Ready Reads program and we were, I guess, in a way, delivering reads to the community again. And we had so much positive feedback from from customers saying they were delighted with what we'd chosen for them. And you felt a sense of pressure because you didn't know whether you were actually picking what the customer would like. And they were turning around and saying, Do you know, I would never have even thought to look at that book. And you've opened my eyes to a different author or a different genre. And so... Uh, to me, that was really quite rewarding. And I, and I guess they would have felt that too as they were going out to the rural communities with, with all the new material. Yeah, absolutely. I think it must be really, really lovely to see your profession or, or, or a sort of adjacent profession delivering that empowerment, that education, that entertainment to a community. Fictionalised in a sense, but also heroised in a book where actually it's really, really stressed how important and essential that role is must be really nice to have that reflected back at you a lovely element of the book I thought. Mm. I also thought um, one of the interesting characters was um, Sophia who was the qualified librarian but she wasn't allowed to work in the Kentucky library because she's a black lady um, and I thought that was an interesting 
diversion or another theme um, because obviously it was showing that there were still elements where society hadn't moved on yet. Mm-hmm. And as you were saying earlier with the some of those gender roles, you know, it was the 30s, but it felt like a lot further in the past in some points. I think the, the handling of race in particular in the book was really a very rural reflection of society at the time, I think. It, it was a lot less tolerant and a lot, well, a lot less fair, a lot less, I mean, a lot worse, really. Yeah, I, I thought she did a really good job of, of sort of incorporating these sort of social and political elements into the book. But um, as well, what really stood out to me was the the kind of the detail in the description of the the landscape and how the landscape affects uh, the the characters and and the characters having a relationship with this landscape. Um, I think it really sort of transports you back in into that into that place. I think that's sort of why. I've kind of found it difficult to to remember what time it, this was set in. It's because it's so rural that it, it it could really be like right in colonial era um, America, uh, and it's actually just the thirties. Um, what did you kind of make of that relationship with the setting? I thought it was really good, and as you say, uh, I, I kept thinking of Little House on the Prairie, where they have those wooden sheds out in the in, in the plane and uh, yeah I, I could really imagine myself there and particularly when they the description about riding along the tracks and the paths because I have done riding myself and gone to quite rural places I could visualize myself on a horse going through those places and thinking actually this could be quite perilous if you've got a sheer drop down one side is the horse going to fall off and, and so those sort of things did did come to me and particularly when um, Marjorie is attacked you know, I could really imagine all of that and, and, and her sheer panic and, you know, how she's going to get away from this horrible person that's attacking her. And, yeah, it was very um, ethereal. I, th- I, thought, I thought the writing was very good there. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that we haven't really spoken about yet and might be hard to do while concealing spoilers from listeners, but there, there is also a bit of a murder uh, mis- not a murder mystery, a crime plot, which I don't know about you, but it kind of it, it came about out of nowhere. It's a direction that I just wasn't expecting the book to go in, I think. Uh, what, what did you think about that element, that trial, that justice? Yes, yeah, I, I agree. You know, you, you do wonder what's going to happen in the end and is justice going to be served, as it were. Yeah. But there are lots of sub subplots, certainly, um, with the mine as well and you know Alice's husband's company and the again the malpractice and the sort of perceived abuse of the workers there I thought that was an interesting subplot as well definitely takes some twists and turns that that I certainly didn't expect like at the beginning of the book it sort of seems like quite a a nice but sort of pastoral story about women's independence it really sort of suddenly picks you up and and you're sort of hit with the with the drama of it aren't you yeah, and even, I mean, it touches on abuse as well, doesn't it? So it does cover a huge amount of topics. Mm, mm. And and um, sort of woven into the importance of entertainment and education, there is also that sexual empowerment, or at least the the handing over the key of knowledge to sex education, which I think could have almost been its own book of its own really to to talk about how that might have affected a rural community that didn't have access to that kind of widespread knowledge 
Yeah, absolutely. And also the, the fact that the men folk treated that with suspicion that the librarians were trying to sort of turn the heads of the women by giving them that education. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought that was one of the elements of the book that I found, you know, I, I could have almost yeah, I could have almost read a whole book about it really. So The Giver of Stars is one of her most well-known books. It's probably the one that I'd heard the name of the most. Uh, and then Me Before You is another one that's quite a famous, famous read. So have you read any other Jojo Moyes? Yes, I read, I think it's called The Girl You Left Behind, which is, again, that's another historical one. And it's set in the war um, and it's about a painting. And I thought that was a brilliant book as well. Oh, I'll have to pop that on the on the reading list. And I haven't looked into this in a huge amount of detail, but as I finished the book, I was sort of doing a bit of research, seeing what other people thought about it and things like that. And there was a bit of a controversy around its publication because of this plagiarism row. Apparently it's really, really similar to another book. Did you know much about that when you went into reading it? Is it something that you've discussed or thought about when you've uncovered some of these elements of the novel? No, and and that didn't come up because I said it was our book group choice. That didn't come up at all in our book group discussion. And I was surprised when I was doing a bit of research for this podcast that that that, that had happened. So I know she did a lot of research, didn't she? She actually went out and stayed in a log cabin out in Kentucky about three or four times. But I hadn't realised that there was controversy over a similar book yeah the, the book that it's been accused of being quite similar to is called the book woman of troublesome creek um and i mean oh. that, that could have been the name of this could have been the name of this book i suppose um, yeah absolutely but i think it's difficult when you're handling a true story isn't it because there's always going to be an element of similarity if, if you're doing that i suppose yeah, and I hadn't even realised again until I had looked into it that or started reading it that it was about the, you know, what Mrs. Roosevelt set up. Mm. So uh, it's definitely the problem with with writing about true history, isn't it? Especially you know a a, a very a specific program in a specific area of the country during a very uh, specific time is that it's going to appear similar to other stories as well, isn't it? I guess it's that sort of. It's it's the issue of rewriting history through historical fiction isn't it? is that you can kind of, you know, cross streams um, with with other authors sometimes. Mm. Mm. And yeah, you mentioned that you've read one of Jojo Moy's other books, but do you have any recommendations for listeners if they really enjoyed this? Are there any books that you'd say quite similar? Yeah, if this came in as a ready reads, I love this book. I want a pack of books that are just like this one. What what would you choose? I would recommend The Floating Theatre because it that is set back earlier, you know, in the 1800s, I think, I can't remember. Um, but basically, that starts off as one story and then something else happens, because I don't want to give any spoilers away, that really changes the whole tack of the book and is, is really interesting. So I would I would recommend that. Sounds like a great, great recommendation. Yeah, I think um, for me, it's sort of, in terms of era, it was it was sort of quite similar to to Light of Mice and Men. Um, I think that's probably purely because of the it being sort of set in the thirties. Um, but I think it like thematically, it really reminded me of um, the Secret Life of Bees by Sue Monk Kid. I think just this kind of idea of like the empowerment through sorority being united through a job 
breaking away from sort of overbearing patriarchs and and yeah really really completely different era completely different story but in in kind of feel it, it very much yeah reminds me of the secret life of bees mm, that's really interesting i thought it was comparable if not similar to the where the crawdads sing by delia owens which oh it's, yeah it's got that kind of american uh, rural um, beautiful settings in that book we, we really like that we've had it as a recommendation on the podcast before and um, also a trial element there and stuff like that so I think if people readers or listeners really love that element of this book I'm sure that they would quite like that one too mm, yeah no, that's a brilliant book We've been talking about The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes. Um, thank you for that recommendation, Anne, and um, we look forward to seeing you in Yately Library soon. Thanks for having me. That was great. I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of Jojo Moyes, and I've been really interested... Uh, to read about Giver of Stars. There's been quite a lot of it in the press about it and it's not one I've got round to reading yet, so it will be next on my list. Yeah, it's certainly an interesting story and, and a, a period of time that and a space that I don't really know much about, sort of being set in the 30s in, in Kentucky. I didn't really know much about that kind of historical period, so it was great to sort of read a book about that too. Anne mentioned our ready-read service there, a brilliant way to discover new books you never thought you'd love. We'll select some great reads based on what you like for you to pick up in Branch. You can request up to 15 books in four weeks. For adults, it's £16 for a 12-week membership. And that perhaps makes it the perfect last-minute Christmas book for an avid reader in your life. You can buy a gift certificate in a library branch or you can use the link in the podcast show notes to find out more information. Now, it's time to have a look at some of our BorrowBox Unlimited titles for the month. These are the ebooks and audiobooks you can access right now without having to reserve. My pick for this month is The Pearl Thief by Elizabeth Wine. It's a YA about a 15-year-old girl exploring a mystery set in the Scottish Highlands. Well, of the collection, I have to say I was quite tempted to give Anton Dubeck's romantic uh, story a go. I'd be really interested to see whether he's as good a writer as he is a dancer. But I am thoroughly enjoying a range of other BorrowBox titles at the moment. Um, you'll always find something that's of interest, even if you have to put uh, your top choice on a reserve list. I'm in fact listening to three different BorrowBox books at the moment, uh, including one I'd really recommend, which is called uh, Traces. And it's the memoir of a forensic scientist called Patricia Wiltshire. So uh, I highly recommend that to anyone who's interested in forensic science. And that's about all we have time for. And so please check out our other unlimited titles in the episode show notes. But um, thank you for joining us and thank you to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. I'm Isaac Favashi. And I'm Kate Price-McCarthy. <laughs>